Hi everyone and welcome to South Asia Sphere, our monthly roundup of news events and developing stories across South Asia. I'm Raisa and I'm joined by my colleagues Shubanga, Marlon and Shweta from Colombo, Sri Lanka, as well as Aimun from Karachi, Pakistan, and Sana from New Delhi, India. Hi guys. Hey. Hello. Hello. Hi. So our big stories in this edition are on climate impacts across the region in light of World Environment Day and on how governments are cracking down on protesters in Myanmar and elsewhere. Let's talk about the climate crisis. Shweta, I hear you've been following the impact of the heat wave in Pakistan. For neighboring Pakistan, it was the hottest April in 61 years. Yes, Shaiza. So, Pakistan is facing a severe and unprecedented heat wave over the last three months, which is putting the lives of millions at risk. It was the hottest April in 61 years for Pakistan, where Jacobabad, already one of the hottest cities in the world, hit a record-breaking 51 degrees. This extreme weather has killed at least 65 people in Pakistan, though the true number of casualties is likely much higher. And the worst impacts are felt in both urban and rural areas, particularly the most vulnerable populations who don't have access to cooling, shelter or water, and they're forced to work in dangerous weather conditions and have to manage power outages and rising energy prices. Pakistan is also facing a water crisis exacerbated by the heat wave, which has been linked to a recent cholera outbreak from contaminated drinking water that has infected thousands in central Pakistan. And this is also a wake-up call for what's in store for the region because climate scientists are saying that heat waves are growing more frequent, more dangerous and lasting longer as the baseline temperatures from which they begin are higher than they were decades ago. Thanks, Shweta. The heat wave compounded by the water crisis is also impacting Pakistan's agricultural production, which might lead to an economic crisis and food shortages in the near future. Rising temperatures have resulted in reduced crop yields, and the southern Punjab region faces a serious prospect of desertification. Locals have also reported that livestock was unable to bear the high temperatures, resulting in cattle death, adding to the worries of the farmers. In the northern region of the country, Pakistan's large glacial landscape is melting at an accelerated rate, which might lead to flooding and landslides. An example of this was seen when glacial lake outbursts flood associated with Shishpir Glacier caused the Hassanabad Bridge on Karakoram Highway to collapse. Heat wave is 45 degrees, the new normal for April. Delhi and CR with Suraj ka torture. Many say that this is directly linked to climate change. Uh, just like Pakistan, uh, severe heat waves were recorded in India as well. Uh, at least 15 Indian states and union territories witnessed heat waves. Uh, the average maximum temperature over northwest and central India for April this year has been the highest in 122 years. Uh, heat waves are so intense that even hill stations in Himachal Pradesh and Uttarakhand saw a rise in average temperatures. 
Uh, it is also important to note here that heat waves are common in India. Uh, what is unusual this time is, like Shweta also mentioned, is that heat waves started early and are staying longer and intensity of it has increased. Uh, the severe heat waves have affected wheat harvest in India, which is being seen as one of the reasons for India's ban on its uh, wheat exports. Uh, the government has also warned about increase in forest fires hotspots. Also, while North India saw high temperatures, in the east, Assam's uh, Dima Hassau district has uh, been hit by flash floods and massive landslides at several places. Uh, according to climate experts, rise in temperature would increase flood events in the region as well. Uh, Shubanga, I think Bangladesh has, all, has also been witnessing similar events, right? Yeah, yes, Sana. So, Bangladesh recently suffered, uh, was being reported as the worst flood uh, in two decades in the region, uh, which affected over 2 million people, uh, killing at least 10 and leaving large parts of the uh, northeastern region submerged underwater. So the pre-monsoon flash flooding was caused by prolonged periods of rain, uh, which caused the swelling of two important rivers, Surma and Kushiara, which then, um, and eventually which broke a river embankment in Silhet district in northeastern Bangladesh, which is also the most uh, impacted district. Uh, in fact, over 60% of the district was uh, underwater. And, uh, you know, this is part of the same extreme event that you mentioned affecting Assam, uh, which happens to border Silhet. So, the waters have receded now, uh, but among the most acute humanitarian crises that followed the, flat, uh, the flash floods were severe food uh, and water shortages. Um, and the UNICEF actually estimated soon after the floods that over 1.5 million children were at increased risk of waterborne diseases, drowning, uh, and malnutrition. And uh, the flood also actually shut down critical infrastructures like power stations, uh, which would, you know, obviously also impact uh, the preparations and the plans for rescue uh, and recovery. Yeah, and Shubhanga, I guess it's uh, unfortunate and even unfair, as uh, this report from the Asian Development Bank in 2020 mentions, that, uh, you know, South Asia is a case for how countries that have contributed so little to climate change stand to lose so much. And, you know, there have been many reports uh, that have cited over the years on uh, on how the region sits uh, precariously on the front line of the climate crisis as the ones who are worst affected by it. And uh, I think we recently did, uh, well, last year we did uh, a couple of articles on it and you can also head to our website and uh, read our explainer titled uh, Count Your Climate Losses, which speaks more about the reporting on the climate crisis from, uh, you know, mainly international bodies. Yeah, Marlon, exactly. I mean, South Asia isn't necessarily, you know, the worst offender when it comes to things like carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions in general. Although, you know, there's a, this misconception since India is often cited as an offender due to high carbon emissions, but it does have like a low historical legacy of emissions if you look at the history. But despite this, you know, several countries continue to take on these development projects that impact the environment. A recent example is the Maldives, which has often been praised for its advocacy on the climate crisis, um, but they're currently undertaking this land reclamation project in Addu Island, which activists are saying will impact the marine environment and uh, coral reefs. We actually recently published an article on it in uh, Himal Briefs, so you can check that out on our website. Yeah, so now rise over in Sri Lanka, now which, which is experiencing daily power cuts. Uh, 
the Electricity Act was just uh, recently amended to allow the Indian Adani Group to bypass the competitive bidding process in order to invest in uh, renewable energy projects in Sri Lanka. And this has been met with some serious pushback from the Ceylon Electricity Board uh, engineers. And, um, you know, comparisons have been made with Sri Lanka's hasty switch to organic fertilizer, which happened last year. Uh, and um, this could impact the general public who are already struggling because of the economic recession. Martin, didn't the CEV chair in a COP meeting state that President uh, Rajapaksa summoned him and told him to award the wind power project to the Adani group according to the wishes of Prime Minister Modi? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, so you, you saw that. So he made this really controversial statement, which was like immediately denied by the president. And uh, then the CEB chairman, in a, in a very strange move, withdrew the statement, you know, and he apologized, saying that he was, you know, overcome with uh, emotion when he made those claims. Uh, and then it was reported, I think, uh, on the 13th that uh, he had actually resigned. Also, just to mention here that, uh, you know, on this controversy with Adani and Modi, like there's very little coverage in Indian newspapers on this. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I think people are talking about it. Like, I think the Indian journalists are interested, but you're right. Like, I haven't seen, like, critical coverage about the Adani group. Um, although some, like, analysts here have been, and, like, activists have been kind of sharing a lot of websites, kind of raising concerns about the Adani group. Yeah. I think yesterday, I think yesterday I saw, um, like, a brief segment by NDTV on this whole issue, especially after the, the, the resignation. Um, so, yeah, so there have been some coverage, but I think, uh, like you said, it's not like it's not a like a major story. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, so our uh, next big story is on how governments across the region are cracking down on protesters on a similarly optimistic note. Mal and I hear that there's been some disturbing developments in Myanmar. Yes, Raisa. So as we all know, the military took over uh, Myanmar in uh, February 2021. And since then, uh, they've been accused of using the death penalty as a tool for repression. And if you just take last week, uh, the junta announced that it would execute four people whose appeals have been rejected following um, trials behind closed doors. Uh, and the charges are on terrorism and treason. They include a former member of uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, NLD, uh, Pyo Seatao, and the veteran activist uh, Kiao Means Yu, uh, also known as uh, Ko Jimmy. And this points towards a very disturbing trend by the Myanmar junta to repress all forms of dissent through the use of uh, death sentences. And um, Amnesty uh, reports that the last judicial execution took place in um, 1988. And uh, now it is reported that since the uh, military seized power in Myanmar, at least 114 people have been reportedly sentenced to death, including 41 in absentia. State overreaches were also witnessed across Sri Lanka in the past month, especially in light of the ongoing protests. The most noticeable incident took place on 9th May when supporters of the current regime arrived at Golf Green in Colombo 
and physically assaulted peaceful protesters. Protesters present at the location claimed that the police retreated when the attack began, reflecting the state's support for the violence from citizens. At least 150 people have been reported injured and five dead in similar incidents since. The state has also cracked down on telecommunication, blocking social media in order to disrupt the communication between activists organizing the protests and the citizenry. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, at least six journalists were booked under Section 120 of the Sri Lankan Penal Code, which makes it an offense to, quote-unquote, excite feelings of disaffection against the government. Youth activists who promote the go-home quota are, hashtag, are being abducted from their homes and being produced in police stations the next day. Yes, exactly, Aymon. And um, from what I'm seeing, a lot of activists are talking about exhaustion, as some of them, especially uh, the student groups, um, since some of the protesters are like university students, and uh, those who are protesting outside particular uh, buildings such as uh, the police headquarters uh, and the presidential secretariat, for example, are being tear-gassed. In the beginning, many of the protesters who were taking to the streets, particularly the Sinhalese protesters, were actually calling on the, prote- the police to protect and support them, um, which is a stark difference to Tamil protesters and those protesting in the north and east of the country, which has long disproportionately felt the impact of both militarization and police brutality. Um, On the positive side, you know, this kind of situation has led to a lot of discussion, debate, and even recognition of entrenched divisions in the country, uh, with protesters at the Golfes site, for example, marking Remembrance Day on May 18th and the burning of the Jaffna Library um, at the site in solidarity. And several other protest sites, too, have been hosting discussions on the civil war and on economic and political rights. But there is this kind of question of how long this protest can last as the government continues to arrest protest leaders and target them with tear gas, even as newly appointed Prime Minister Ranil Vikramasinghe says that the protest will be allowed to continue. Guys, the situation is also not very different in India. Like, still, several Dalkonian laws are still used in India to control resistance. Several activists and protesters are sla- were slapped with the anti-terror UAPA or unlawful activities prevention act during the Shaheen Bagh protests and anti-Muslim riots in 2020. And uh, this anti-terror law UAPA makes bail quite difficult and many activists like Uma Khalid and Khalid Saifi are still in jails even after two years. Uh, in Kashmir also, activists and journalists are routinely harassed and booked under acts like UAPA and uh, PSA or Public, Public Safety Act uh, for putting out reports on atrocities by the government and the army. And uh, we have also done a video on this, on these incidents, which is available on Himal South Asian YouTube channel. Uh, in fact, like the most recent from the Hindu nationalist uh, Bharati Janata Party, I mean, they have started demolishing houses of Muslim protesters by giving a short notice and, you know, calling their property illegal construction. And uh, this was seen in many cases in recent protests in Uttar Pradesh and Delhi, where the government, uh, like, uh, where the houses of protesters were demolished in the presence of the police. Thanks, Sana. And over in Pakistan, ousted Prime Minister Imran Khan held several huge rallies demanding fresh elections, and the government initially banned Khan's effort after a police officer was allegedly shot by a supporter. 
but the Supreme Court later permitted PTI to hold its march. Then the government launched a crackdown and detained thousands of Khan supporters. Riot police fired tear gas and pushed back demonstrators in Lahore. Dozens also briefly clashed with police in Islamabad. Altercations were also reported in Karachi, where protesters burned a police vehicle. In another instance, peaceful Baloch protesters in Karachi were forcefully dispersed and around 28 protesters were detained by the police from outside the Sindh Assembly on the night of 13th June. They were protesting against the abduction of two Baloch students of the University of Karachi on June 7th, who have been released since. This police action was widely condemned as footage of disproportionate use of force on women activists and also police dragging peaceful protesters emerged. And now for our next segment around South Asia in five minutes. Nepali women's rights activists have taken to the streets to protest against sexual crimes and the statute of limitation that is limited to one year, which means that victims and survivors of sexual crimes are not allowed to file cases to demand justice once their uh, statute of limitation expires. The protests were in uh, reaction to a series of uh, social media posts by a 24-year-old woman who revealed that when she was 16, she was drugged, raped, filmed, and then blackmailed by the organizer of a beauty pageant. And uh, just to add some context to this, um, so there have been some notable protests and movements uh, in recent years in Nepal, including uh, in cases where there seemed to be complicity of the police or the local political leadership in you know protecting the alleged perpetrator and discouraging uh, investigation and prosecution and uh, actually in recent weeks some mps uh, have also spoken on the current statute of limitation on rape um, some in opposition but a few also in favor of it and there's also been a petition filed at the supreme court demanding uh, you know the removal of the statute on limitations so yeah let's let's see how it develops uh, from India, there were massive protests in multiple cities over offensive remarks made by, made by the Hindu nationalist Bharatiya Janata Party spokesperson Nupur Sharma uh, against Prophet Muhammad on a TV debate. Uh, after several nations such as Pakistan, Afghanistan, Maldives, UAE, Iraq and Iran launched official protests condemning the remarks, the BJP government suspended the spokesperson and expelled the media head of the party's the Delhi unit. And uh, as we had mentioned in our last podcast as well about how the Hindu nationalist government is acting against Muslims and using quote-unquote bulldozer justice by demolishing illegal constructions. And uh, this time again, the Uttar Pradesh police demolished a house of a Muslim activist, Afreen Fatima, calling her father, Javed Muhammad, the quote-unquote mastermind of the protest in the state. And uh, there were demolitions seen and carried out in Kanpur district in the state as well. Uh, the police have arrested around 300 people from various districts in Uttar Pradesh. And uh, in the state of Jharkhand, two people died after the police opened fire on protesters in its capital city, Rachi. And uh, curfew has been imposed in many parts 
of Gachi. In reaction to the demolitions that happened in Uttar Pradesh, a Muslim body Jamaat Ulama-e Hind has filed two pleas in the Supreme Court, uh, seeking directions to the Uttar Pradesh government to ensure that no further demolitions are carried out without uh, following due process. And a section of for, uh, former Supreme Court and High Court judges, along with uh, senior advocates, have also issued an urgent appeal to the Supreme Court to take so much cognizance of the violence and repression by state authorities in Uttar Pradesh. Also from India, accredited social health activist workers, also known as ASHA workers, who are India's frontline community health care workers. um actually won the world health organization's 2022 global leaders award um and this was announced on may 22nd for their contribution towards protecting and promoting health this is an important milestone because asha workers are often overworked and underpaid they have been staging protests for non-payment of salaries and incentives for several years now um to put their you know their plight in words Here is a quote by an Asha worker, which was published in an Indian newspaper. When we went to press for our demands, we were beaten up, our numbers were traced, and some of us were put under house arrest. When they have to pay us, they say we aren't regular employees and only volunteers. But when they have to choke our voices, they invoke ESMA. Uh, the ESMA law makes it mandatory for essential service providers to report for duty. Incidentally, this is a sim. There's a similar essential services kind of notification that's often issued in Sri Lanka to kind of compel people to report state uh, workers to report for duty, and this happened here recently too in the context of um, power outages when you know when they were striking and they were compelled to report to work. In Kashmir, Yasin Malik, a pro-freedom leader in Indian administered Kashmir and chief of the now banned Jammu and Kashmir Liberation Front, also known as JKLF, was sentenced to life imprisonment by a special national investigation agency court in New Delhi. JKLF has been a non-violent group since 1994. However, however, Malik was convicted of committing terrorist acts, which included illegally raising funds for alleged terror groups. membership in a terrorist organization criminal conspiracy and sedition human rights groups have criticized the verdict claiming that this demonstration of the polit- of politics of revenge will further sour the relationship between the indian state and kashmiri citizens this became evident soon after the verdict when the when mobile network services were suspended in the city of srinagar as security forces took charge of the streets to discourage protests despite this several areas saw public demonstrations protesting the court's judgment And now it's time for our next segment bookmark. So we had a third Twitter space on uh, cinema and resistance in collaborations with a uh, sister organization Film South Asia on June 3. Uh, Umair Alavi, journalist and film critic from Pakistan, and Sumathi Sivamohan, filmmaker from Sri Lanka, uh, joined us for the session. Uh, we had an interesting uh, discussion on how similar and different film industries are in these countries, how filmmakers navigate uh, strict censorship by the state, and some interesting takes on what actually are art films. The recorded discussion is on our Twitter page, and we'll soon be uploading it as a podcast on our site. 
guys any other recommendations yeah actually um i have a book that i wanted to recommend it's uh, incantations over water by sharanya manivanan which is actually published under wesleyan books which was recently shut down by amazon so it was a bit of an adventure to get it here um in the midst of an economic crisis um i had to i mean i tried messaging several indian bookstores which basically ghosted me at some point <laughs> but um i was finally able to find like a local bookstore through instagram um who actually managed to import it for me and about the book it's actually a quite a beautifully illustrated genre bending novel set in batiklo um it's really more of like a graphic novel and um Sharanya says that she was inspired by curiosity when she noticed that Batiklo which is also known as the town of uh singing fish um that you know the town was full of these statues and other iconography of mermaids but there was a seeming absence of lore accompanying it um and part of the book actually tells the tale of Suvarna Macha which is a who is a mermaid queen and her love story when she encounters hanuman trying to build a bridge to sri lanka it's quite lyrically interesting yeah it's it's really beautifully illustrated um i believe some indian libraries made pledges to stock some of wesleyan's books and i definitely recommend uh reading it if you can get your hands on a copy um fans of love death and robots the series on netflix might also be interested to know that on the most recent season uh the siren in the last episode um uh, which is titled Jibaro might be partly inspired by Suvarna Macha oh wow although Seriously? you know uh, yes, i love i love apparently i found i found one article which said that it could be Suvarna Macha there's been many which have been written kind of trying to identify like the inspiration and there's also been kind of lines drawn to puerto rican or spanish folklore mm. nice. um but yes that was that was a really beautiful uh episode malan yeah, i agree yeah. like um that was and i immediately yeah i immediately thought of um because i had just recently read this book and it i definitely felt like parallels in the appearance she definitely kind of resembles um the way that she's drawn in incantations over water mm-hmm. so yeah i definitely recommend checking that out if you can what is the netflix uh, show again sorry i missed it just so that it's called love death and robots it's basically um yeah it's a series on netflix uh, is it animated um, kind of mostly animated like short yeah mostly yeah, all animated of, all of it is animated. very short uh, films yeah. right like yeah short episodes okay yes yeah yeah like standalone any... films yeah. the like 20 minutes long i really enjoyed like it's in its third season it's now, mostly right? post apocalyptic mm. sort of you know like there are no humans yeah, yeah, i remember now robots yeah robots who come to the then see like what what did humans do wrong to you know reach this uh, particular mm. stage and i agree with you marlin and gaisa like that episode was really interesting man yeah and the whole dance move like there must be some special like name to that like the dance moves that she does it when she comes out of water oh exactly yeah, yeah yeah exactly cuz that was my first question i was like wow she looks so southeast asian yeah. and like yes like she just looks like that and i was like i wonder where he got the inspiration i mean from. the jewelry yeah. i think the jewelry Dress, and also yeah. the clothes i mean they they yeah 
Yeah. The men didn't look like it, no? The the soldiers looked yeah, quite... Yeah, because it's set in Puerto uh, Rico. Yeah. It's set in, like, Puerto right, Rico. I did right. some research because I was really interested okay. um, when I saw this. And unfortunately, the director kind of just says very vaguely that he was inspired by sirens and doesn't mm. really oh, right. uh, go too much into the... I mean, there's a... Cl- yeah, there's a clear, I mean, siren reference, no? I mean, that, that, that is clear. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people yeah. love Jibaro. Like, I saw so many... Yeah, Jibaro was amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, even I would go as far as to say, like, one of the best episodes, maybe from, like, the whole three seasons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think really it was one it. of the best shots. I think they definitely improved from... I felt like season two, they were flagging, and then yeah. this season, yeah, it agreed. picked up again. But it was so violent, no? It was, like, really bloody and violent. Yeah, and, for sure. You know, for sure. I Very mean, actually, also. okay, incidentally, so the director says that it was inspired by a toxic relationship. That's what it's inspired by, apparently. <laughs> okay. And it's like, yeah, there's there's like a lot of, I did a lot of, like, just reading about it. because You've gone really deep, Raisa, you've gone deep. <laughs> yeah, I did yeah. a deep dive. <laughs> I did a deep dive <laughs> uh, for no reason, but yeah. Raisa, you did a Twitter thread on yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I compiled a Twitter oh. thread. Um, that was really okay. cool. We should link, link that to that. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I yeah. just posted it because, you know, I just found it really interesting and I saw so many people mm. tweeting about um, Chibaro on, on, like, just saying that it was really nice. But the first thing I thought was, like, wow, that where is that person from? Like, that person looks so, like, mm. from our region, but it's not mentioned mm. at all in the credits or anything yeah so that that parallel you made you you know you're speaking about that's really interesting yeah Yeah, i thought it was super super cool i i found one lone article which said it could be suvarna masha and i was just thrilled because i was like oh i just knew like it was something um but yeah So, uh, I recently watched uh, Ani Mani by Fahim Irshad. Uh, it is on how a Muslim family from a low-income group struggles with the beef ban imposed in the state. And to be honest, after watching the film, I was like, why did I watch it? Because with everything going in India, it was a bit uh, distressing film. But, uh, I mean, it was in, in terms of like, it beautifully captures the ambitions of people in small towns in India. And, you know, as well as struggles around identity in a secretarian states, you know, with comments like, which, like, I also face, and I know a lot of Muslims in India face, like, if you say something against the government, you're, like, immediately the responses then go to Pakistan, right? And, you know, similar cases, you know, is mentioned in the film as well. And uh, I thought the film also beautifully reflects on how people react to violence by the state. So, like, some try to stay low in order to get to not get in trouble, some rebel against against it, and some don't have a choice but to continue what they have been doing, and uh, that was the case in the film as well. So, like, do watch it if you can find it online. अब्बू आप कुछ शेर सोच रहे हैं यहाँ कारोबार पे कैरियर पे लात पड़ रही है काफी सर अगर सब बांट देंगे तो फिर खाएंगे क्या कमाएंगे 
सर घर वालों को कहाँ लेके जाएंगे सर पाकिस्तान चला जा I have a book recommendation as well. So this is actually a book on uh, the kind of early modern poet Kabir. So the book is called Kabir Kabir the life and work of the early modern poet philosopher. And uh, you know obviously it's about uh, Kabir who is kind of seen as many things as a saint superhuman uh, but also kind of like a secular icon who's uh, you know who was against orthodoxy and and kind of inequality. Um so but it's written Uh, by a scholar Purushottam Agrawal, who's actually worked on Kabir for almost like forty years now, um, written many books on him. But this is like the most, I would say, like accessible introduction to Kabir and also to his poetry. But instead of looking at Kabir as like a religious icon or saint, it kind of tries to bust a lot of myths and uh, look at him as a, you know, as a human being, as a poet, kind of operating in his times and. um and as a weaver in in banaras which was actually what he what he did it's a nice kind of breezy read and also because you know it's written by someone who's kind of written and thought about him for so long uh, um it's you know it doesn't carry any academic jargon but is kind of seeped in academic research and and uh, kind of work so uh, that's my recommendation you can find it you can find an electronic version online And on that note, that's it for this edition of South Asia Sphere. Do head to our website himalmag.com to see more of Himal's work. And while you're at it, check out our membership plans and support us. Thanks, everyone. Bye. 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 Bye.